Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Robert Barron. He is Auxiliary Bishop in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles and founder of Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. He was our Erasmus lecture four years ago. People know him very well in our audience. He has many publications, uh, in fact, just in the last few years, including Eucharist, a handsome little volume with no subtitle, just the one word. This is our topic today. Welcome, Bishop Barron. Mark, good to be with you. Thanks for having me on today. First, let me, let me ask, you know, I've, I've gotten some very nice volumes from the Word on Fire Ministry Project. Do you want to just describe uh, what, that, what that project is and how our audience might uh, clue in? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Go to wordonfire.org. You'll find all you need to know about it. Word on Fire is my media ministry, which started, oh, about 20 years ago when I got on the radio in Chicago for 15 minutes on Sunday morning at 5.15 a.m., so I began with this very low-level, you know, sermon show, and then from there it developed into a website. When I barely knew what a website was, and then we moved into recording a number of things I'd done, retreats and talks, and those got on uh, television. And then the big breakthrough was our Catholicism series. I did a ten-part series that took me all over the world to talk about Catholicism, but also to show its beauty. And my model was uh, Kenneth Clark Civilization, so I wanted a program like that about Catholicism. And that kind of really put us on the map and, and made Word on Fire you know, more nationally known. And then since then, we've expanded in all kinds of ways. We now have a full-blown publishing operation. And as you say, bringing out these gorgeous volumes, uh, we have a, a wonderful design team led by a young lady whom I taught at Notre Dame many, many years ago. She was a, a freshman in a religion class that I was teaching there. And then she's joined us and has a graphic design background, and she has a great team around her, and they bring out these beautiful volumes. So the Eucharist book uh, is a reissue of a book I wrote actually a long time ago, but we got the rights back to it and then reissued it under our own steam. Um, but Word on Fire has become, you know, just a great outreach, I think, to the um, the wider culture, to the church, but also to the wider culture. I'm very interested in dialoguing with the so-called nuns, you know, those who have no religion, those who have disaffiliated. And so it's a media, a multimedia outreach to that world. The television series was wonderful. It, 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 it was, it, 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 it had, it was such, it was informative. It, it had, it had a great tone to it uh, yeah. as well. The atmosphere that, that you created, I, I, th I think it was wonderful. And I, I'd, I'd loved, you know, I, why don't they show that at my son's Catholic high school? You know, that, that should, that should be broadcast to, to the high school kids. Exactly. Uh, and, and I think it's the kind of thing that would grab some of those nuns because many of those nuns, actually, they'll say, I'm, I'm kind of spiritual and everything, but the yeah. organized process of, of religious devotion, we're, we're losing them on that score. But, and, and I will add, the, the Word on Fire 
volumes, I'll, I'll emphasize again, they are lovely productions. Uh, you you mm -hmm. do have a great a great design team. The press the press is is great, and and that's why I wanted to come back to the the reissue of the Eucharist. Well, and let me just book. may say one thing about um, the beauty element because uh, I've emphasized the the truthful side of Catholicism. I grew up with a dumbed down Catholicism, which was a pastoral disaster. My generation, right after the council, got a very flattened out, superficial, dumbed down approach. And I say a pastoral disaster very intentionally because you read the surveys and you ask, they ask young people, how come you left the church? Very often the top reasons are intellectual reasons. They'll say, I never got my questions answered. I think science refutes religion. Hmm. Um, I think the, the storyline doesn't make any sense. So a dumbed-down Catholicism has led to a lot of disaffiliation. So I've emphasized the, the truth of the tradition. But the other side is the beauty of it, because we're a beautiful religion. That's one of the marks of Catholicism, is we use the beautiful as a way into uh, the transcendent mystery of God. And so from this, the Catholicism series on, we've stressed that, that it matters to me that the books themselves are beautiful. It matters that as I talked about, let's say, the saints or the Blessed Mother or Jesus in the series, I was showing some of the most beautiful places and works of art in the Catholic world because often they speak to people. The beauty speaks in a way that truth doesn't. Uh, I've seen it happen over and over again. People, some are very persuaded by arguments. I, I'm, I'm rather like that. I'm more of an intellectual type, but not everybody is. Some respond much more to the sacraments, to the saints, to the beauty of a place, to a Chartres Cathedral. Um, so we've tried to bring those two elements together, both the true and the beautiful. I, 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 when I came back into the church a, a, a few years ago, uh, mm. at, at up here at St. Vincent Ferrer in, in New York City, the incense, it really got to me. The, the smoke rising up in, in that building, I, there was something beautiful. Oh, you're <laughs> in the Dominican church. I, the Upper East Side, right? Is that that's, the, that is, it is. I've it, been there. It's a gorgeous place. It, it is, and it doesn't look that way from the outside. No. <laughs> you get inside and say, wow, wow. Yeah. And, and that, that was a big part of, of the experience for me. Yeah, but so, see, when I, was come, when I was coming of age, we, we dumbed it down. We also rendered it rather ugly. Look at the churches built, you know, in the 70s and into the 80s. <laughs> you know, they were terrible. And I remember this vividly, you know, things like incense, let's say. Oh, no, no, that's the old church, that's clericalistic, that's, you know, drawing attention to the priest. But mm. what you're saying, see, is dead right. That, no, people say, no, it's, it's beautiful. And I don't maybe even know for sure what that symbol is saying. Maybe it's saying five or six different things, the way great symbols do. But I know it's moving me. But trust me when I tell you, I remember vividly as a young priest fighting older priests. Because if I wanted to use incense, or we, hey, why don't we have stained glass windows and not just brick walls? Oh, no, 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 that's old church, that's clericalistic. And that stuff has, has been a disaster for the church. Well, you actually, uh, speaking autobiographically, the book, Eucharist, opens with a scene of you distributing communion. It's in 2007 yeah. in St. Yeah. Peter's Square in Rome. And you note there the avid hunger uh -huh. of Italians for the Eucharist. Did you find that intensity throughout your time in Rome? I don't know if I'd say that, but certainly that day and that kind of experience, it, it was just provocative for me because, uh, as I think I say in the book, it, it might have been a little bit of Italian melodrama. You know, Italians love to kind of over-dramatize things. But 
I thought that gesturing toward the Eucharist and the scene you're describing is when I was distributing communion in St. Peter's Square to like literally thousands of people. And it wasn't well organized. It wasn't like a little line coming forward one by one. It was people just crowding around. And what came to my mind was if I was in like a refugee camp and I had arrived with food to starving people, they wouldn't line up one by one. They would come crowding in. That's what it was like. And then all the hands reaching out with a kind of desperation. And it just struck me as that's right. That's the right attitude toward the Eucharist. Um, it's, it's food for desperately hungry people. And maybe the church itself has forgotten the urgency of, of uh, that spiritual feeding. So I, I just love that image. You highlight the, the core value of the Eucharist. You say we couldn't possibly be the church without it. Right. The Eucharist, this, this, is, this, is, this is the center. This is exactly where, where, what, what feeds the real hunger. Vatican II calls it the source and summit of the Christian life, and that's a very important description. Um, it's the, where it comes from. It's where it goes. It's the culmination of the Christian life. It's what feeds and sustains the Christian life. Aquinas typically uses the metaphor of food, you know, for the Eucharist. And let's face it, without food, the body uh, collapses. Um, I've had a couple times in my life that experience of, of hitting the wall. You know, once I was on a bike trip. I, years ago, I was an avid uh, cyclist, and I was going from Paris to Rome. And um, wow. one day after, yeah, it was quite a trip. And we did about 70 or 80 miles a day for about 12 days. And I was in better shape in those days. Um, but it was at, at the middle of one of these long days, and I'm going along, and I just stopped. And I, I knew at that point what athletes meant when they talk about hitting the wall. It didn't mean I just got tired. It meant I could, it was like running out of gas. I just ran out of gas and had to refuel. You know, we had these big baguettes with us and water and so on. So I just spent 20 minutes refueling. But see, that's the right metaphor, it seems to me, for the Eucharist, that without it, we, um, we shut down spiritually. Um, and so people that stay away from the Eucharist on a regular basis, which is now about 75% of Catholics, right? Statistically, in our country, about 25% go to Mass on a regular basis. So 75% are staying away from the source and summit, staying away from what feeds us spiritually. No wonder a lot of people are hitting the wall spiritually. Yeah. You note that uh, Christianity, uh, not just Catholicism, but puts many demands. Catholicism, in particular, puts many demands uh, upon Christians going back to the beginning, but not a single one of those demands has been as well obeyed as yeah. the Eucharist. What, 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 what has kept the Eucharist such, such, a, such a powerful uh, command of obedience that is followed? You know, I got that from Ronald Knox, and when I read that years ago, it just, it, it just took my breath away because I thought, it's absolutely right. Jesus has given us all these commands, and we, we regularly disobey all of them. You know, all the ethical commands and the commands to pray and all this. But weirdly, Knox observed, and I think he's right, weirdly across the centuries, the church has stubbornly done this in memory of Jesus. You know, so when he said, do this in memory of me, the church has maintained this Eucharistic focus up and down the centuries. And I think it's just, it's a mystery of grace that somehow we know, we, we instinctually sense the church would fall apart without this, that without the Eucharist, we'd stop being the church. And so despite our many, many failures and our, 
and our sort of pathetic performance in regard to almost every other command of the Lord, we do stubbornly keep this one alive. I think by a very fundamental religious instinct about its uh, indispensability. Uh, when you turn to the Eucharist and begin exploring it, you find that uh, it's actually a very complex uh, condensation of many different things. One, you call it the meal of fellowship. Uh, it is also the suffering of, of the passion and the reality of Christ. It, Christ is here combined yeah. into one practice. And that yeah. you say all three functions must be observed, recognized, maintained. Correct? Right. Yeah. And see, in my generation, I'm, I'm picking on maybe the people that, that form me. We got a dumbed-down Catholicism. We got a rather unbeautiful Catholicism. And we certainly got a very truncated understanding of the Eucharist. Because in my time, trust me, the almost univocal stress was upon uh, Eucharist's meal. So we're going to gather around. We didn't call it the altar. We called it the table. We're going to gather around the table. We're going to have the sacred meal together. We're going to find fellowship with the Lord, with one another. All of which, of course, is fine. All of which is, is one dimension. But for my generation, if you talked about the sacrifice of the Mass, the holy sacrifice of the Mass, most people in my generation wouldn't know what you're talking about. They might recognize that as, oh, yeah, my, my parents used that language. And then real presence. Look at the pew form study now from a couple years ago that so got my attention that um, I brought it to, to my brother bishops and said, we got to do something about this. 70% of Catholics, not of the general population, of Catholics don't believe in the real presence, said something like the Eucharist is best construed as a symbol. Um, well, when you lose the sacrificial dimension, you lose the real presence dimension, and you reduce it to this one, the meal dimension, you've got a dangerously pathetically truncated understanding of the Eucharist. And so, right, the three of them co-inhere. The three of them are co-implicative. And just, you know, the, I begin that book with um, Babette's Feast, you know, the film that everybody loves. And right. I went back to the short story upon which it's based, and which is marvelous, you know. But, but the central thing, see, everyone gets in Babette's Feast, how wonderful that this chef comes in, this gifted you know, chef, and she prepares this sumptuous meal, and these kind of uptight puritanical people suddenly realize the glories of, of you know, the, the dining table, and, you know, it, it's, a, it's a sumptuous symbol of God, and all that, terrific. It's the meal element, and they, they realize their own fellowship with each other. They were, they were brought out of themselves. Terrific. But what they all forget is the scene. The whole dinner is over, and they go back to to congratulate Babette, who had, who had produced this. And there she sits, the author says beautifully, on a butcher's block, exhausted, having, by the way, spent all the money she'd won in the lottery. She spent this huge amount of money. And then she spent herself utterly to make this meal possible. So what that is, is the coming together of the meal and the sacrificial dimension of the Eucharist. In a world gone wrong, there's no communion, there's no fellowship or meal without sacrifice. And to see those two together is to get the Mass as the sacred meal, yes, indeed, but also as the, as the sacrifice. It's the representation of the cross of Jesus. We see Jesus on the butcher's block, if you want. We see him crucified. So I, I wanted to recover all of that and then take the next step. Who is it? who's here to be consumed as sacred food? Who is it 
who's making the sacrifice, but Christ really present. Body, blood, soul, and divinities, we say, really present among us. And those three dimensions cohere at, at every Mass. And so that's what I wanted to stress in the book. It's, it's a great, I mean, speaking as, as an English teacher, it's a great analysis that you do. And I'll just let readers know that you actually go into the sisters who are the hosts. Yeah. Uh, and and the, the problems with their asceticism that they've lived by in, in their mm -hmm. lives, somehow Babette, you know, makes, makes an important adjustment uh, to that. Um, I'll leave that for, for, for our audience who go read the book. Uh, anyway, I do that often in my books. I've used literary uh, devices to get people into the theological because that's, again, my instinct about the beautiful is that, you know, you could talk abstractly about these three dimensions, but when you, you can imagine it, you can see it narratively displayed, uh, that can have a very profound impact on you. So I tend to do that. I've used Faulkner, I've used Dante, I've used Flannery O'Connor, a lot of literary people in my work because I realize, you know, if you're a soul doctor, you got to have a lot of different... Uh, medicines in your black bag, you know, and so if you're just doing argument all the time, that will appeal to some. But when you can throw in a, a, a work of art, a, a story, a narrative, an image, that can draw people in more powerfully. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You mentioned a moment ago that the Powerful symbols mean a lot of different things. And one thing that yeah. you highlight about the sacred meal of the Eucharist is that it is a very good symbol for the theology of creation. What do you mm -hmm. mean by that? Well, go right back to the beginning. Uh, we put such a stress on the prohibition. So in the, in the beautiful poetic language of Genesis, when the first human beings are given the prohibition indeed, not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And once we unpack that symbol, we see how powerful it is. But we tend to forget that, that there's a 99% permission. So the Lord says, eat of all the fruit of all the trees. And the church fathers read that as all forms of human flourishing. So think of friendship and, and music and the arts and politics and, and uh, uh, everything that makes human life rich and wonderful. The Lord says, go, eat. My, my goal in creating you is to feed you in such a way that you share in my life and my joy. Now, why the prohibition? Well, because the one thing you can't or shouldn't do is arrogate to yourself the prerogative of God to determine good and evil. See, that, that's, that's God's prerogative, not mine. But leave that aside, the one prohibition, one. Now, the, the hyper-generous permission of God to eat of all the trees. Now, carry that theme of the meal, as I do in the book briefly, right through salvation history, the Passover meal, you know, by which the, the Israelite people find their identity, the great imagery from the prophet Isaiah of God's holy mountain at which a sumptuous meal is laid out, and then come right up into Jesus himself. It's not just accidental that, that central to his ministry was what the scholars call open table fellowship. 
inviting saints and sinners, you know, the righteous and the prostitutes, and everybody comes to eat at the table of the Lord. Well, that's God feeding his people, all of which culminates in the Last Supper when Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, take and eat, take and drink. It's now the Lord, in the, in the richest possible sense, feeding us with his life. That's what he wanted from the beginning. That was, that was the, the point of creation. And so this wonderful theme of the meal and of our, now, now go to those people at St. Peter's Square stretching out their hands to me to receive the bread of life. Well, that's the proper response to God's desire to feed us. That's how it's related to creation and creation's purpose. You say also that the feeding is not an end. You actually say the taking of communion entails a, quote, commission. Uh, we were then sent out into the world. The meal, the meal sets you on your path. Yeah, well, you're fed with Christ. Now you go Christify the world. So now you become uh, bread for others. Um, you know, in the Mass, when we're sent out at the very end, uh, go, the Mass is ended. Um, it was Omri de Lubach, the great theologian, who said, after the words of consecration, those are the most sacred words of the Mass. It's very interesting. So having experienced the sacred meal, having eaten and drunk the body and blood of the Lord, now go. Now you go and Christify the world. So you're a, a Catholic a journalist, you're a Catholic parent, you're a Catholic business leader, you're a Catholic uh, a politician. Now you go and uh, Christify your world. So right, it's, it's part of the Great Commission. The exploration, I, I, I should say, of the different meals that you find through uh, the Bible, uh, those words of go out into uh, the world. I mean, the, the, the Eucharist is an inspiration, you know, take, taking in the Spirit. Mm -hmm. You, one of the things you do when you turn to sacrifice is yeah. go back to the Old Testament covenant and sacrifice uh, in order to fend off Marcionism that you often see in current belief. What is the problem there? It's one of the oldest heresies in the church. A fellow named Marcion, who was operative in Rome in the second century, basically said uh, the Jewish revelation is is no good. It's passe. It, it's the revelation of a fallen God. And what we want are just elements of the New Testament. So he de-Judaized the project so that the Jewish side should be gotten rid of. It was people like Irenaeus of Lyon, one of the greatest of the church fathers, and many others who recognized, no, no, this will do fatal damage to Christianity if we de-Judaize it. Because in fact, the Jewish background is essential to understanding what Jesus is about. It's only as the fulfillment of Torah and temple and, and prophecy and sacrifice that we understand Jesus. And so the Jewish element belongs at the very heart of it. See, I think it's fascinating. I, I, when I talk to Jewish converts, I often mention this, is look at the Catholic Mass. What do we have? We have altars, we have priests, we have vestments, we have miters, we have incense, we have candles, right? Now go back to the book of Exodus, go to the book of Leviticus. What do you find? All those things. So we did not get rid of the temple and all of its accoutrements and all of its practices, but rather we raised them up into a higher synthesis, namely the sacrifice of Jesus, who's the high priest, who performs the definitive sacrifice, who operates in the temple, his body, in fact, is the temple, etc. Right. So Catholicism is a kind of um, it's a kind of transfigured Judaism, if you want, and um, that's extremely important. 
and we, we had to hold off Marcion in order to, to hang on to those ideas. You, you note the many times in which Jesus echoes uh, covenantal and sacrificial language in yeah. the Old Testament. And, th and that actually is, among other things, it's a way of helping the disciples understand what, this, what his sacrifice is, is going to be. Well, that should right there. No, they, it's so important because this, the first Christians didn't read this thing through philosophical lenses. Someone like Paul would have had an acquaintance with the Greek philosophers and so on, but they read them, and you see it all the time in, in the New Testament, katatagrapha, which means according to the writings, according to the writings. They interpreted him according to the writings, which for them meant what we call the Old Testament. So that was the interpretive framework for everything. So when Jesus says, I've come you know, not to be served but to serve, to give my life as a ransom for the many, well, they knew what he meant. They knew that was that was temple sacrifice language. Or when John the Baptist says, you know, behold the Lamb of God. Uh, we hear that today. We might say, oh, isn't that nice? He means Jesus is a nice, you know, peaceful, gentle figure <laughs> like a lamb. Well, I mean, yeah. nobody in the first century would have understood that. They would have understood, oh, he's the one to be offered as a sacrifice in the temple. Um, when the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw all people to himself. Well, they knew that's the lifting up on the cross where the sacrifice is performed, just as the sacrifice of the temple drew all of Israel to themselves, people coming up for the Passover. So now the Son of Man lifted up will draw people to himself. So they read everything through the lens of the Old Testament. So if we get rid of that lens, you have a deeply distorted Christianity. That's why they fought Marcion in the second century. Why did Martin Luther and some others reject the conception of the Mass as a sacrifice. Because, well, Luther would have seen the essential matter is justification by grace through faith, right? That's what it all comes down to. And so that was a question for Luther of a, of a promise made, that there's an offer of salvation made that's taken in. It's a, it's a verbal promise. It's taken in and accepted in faith. That's all that matters. That's, that's all that counts, finally. Everything else is extraneous. And so he would see the sacrificial elements as kind of falling to the side once the definitive sacrifice of the cross is made and salvation is offered. So he saw the Mass as simply, and it's reflected in, in the architecture of Protestant churches. Uh, you don't have an altar at the center of, of attention, you have a pulpit, right? And most time is taken up with the sermon because what matters is the proclamation of the word accepted in faith. Now, some Protestant churches, depending on their you know, denominational background will have the Lord's Supper at different times, but it's not as central as it would be in the Catholic Church because we think the sacrifice of the Mass is uh, is the heart of the matter. But for Luther, it was a it was the proclamation of the Word accepted in faith is is the heart of the matter. Um, we would we would want to add to that the the sacrificial dimension that's uh, that's implicit in the Mass. And. Jesus's actual words, as, as you say, at the Last Supper, dispel the notion that the Eucharist is symbolic and not real. And that this is one of the reasons why the disciple would find that teaching difficult, as, as you put it. I mean, symbolic would make it much easier <laughs> to, of to, course. to absorb this. How, how would you think, would it have, at least initially, the disciples must have been this is you? It really is you? 
Was that, would that be, that's entirely new and not and a new, they would not have seen that in the Old Testament. No, look at, I mean, you can draw the strands together if you want, as I say, like the, the Lord feeding his people and this great imagery of the Lord laying out a banquet for his people. But then they would have seen it as God feeding us with his own life, with his own flesh and blood. No. And the master text there, which I refer to as John chapter 6. So it's the famous discourse at the Capernaum uh, synagogue in which Jesus lays out the teaching on the Eucharist. And, and you're putting your finger on it. What's interesting is if he's speaking at a merely symbolic level, it's hard to understand why the people are reacting the way they do, because there's an enormous resistance to what he's saying. When he says, you know, my, my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink, unless you, as I suggest the Greek is, unless you gnaw on the flesh of the Son of Man and drink up his blood, you have no life in you. And the people say, how could he, how could he speak this way? Well, I mean, look at the Old Testament. Jews were very uh, comfortable with symbolic language. You know, that, that wouldn't have been scandalous to them to think, oh, that's, he's speaking symbolically here. They were sensing he wasn't speaking symbolically. And it's confirmed when Jesus, in response to them, doesn't soften the language, but hardens it, if you want. He, he makes it even edgier. You know, that's, my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Um, and then at the end, it's, in fact, it's interesting, John 6, 66. So John chapter 6, verse 66, is when the people say, this is this saying is too hard, and, and we're going to leave. And he loses most of his disciples at that point. That's when he turns to the 12 and says, well, are, are you going to leave me too? So again, the point is, why would they have been such open rebellion if they knew he was just trading in metaphors and symbols? I, yeah, I think that, that would have been easy enough to take. They sensed he was talking about something else, and I think they were they were right in sensing that. You, you, you note that early Christians might have felt, you mentioned John the Baptist a, a few moments ago, that early Christians might have felt a little, uh, a little uncertainty about a connection between John the Baptist and Jesus. Why would that be? Well, um, John the Baptist is such an interesting figure because he's in all four Gospels, and it's as though all four Gospel writers compel us to get at Jesus through John. John is, is um, a temple figure because both his parents are associated with the priesthood and with the temple. So he knows that whole tradition of sacrifice, of reconciliation with God, of overcoming sin. So the interesting question is, what is he doing out in the desert? Why isn't he in the temple where you'd expect him to be? And he's preparing the way, it seems to me, for a new temple and for a new sacrifice. Um, he's in a way passing judgment on the temple, which indeed will be destroyed. Jesus predicts that. You know, not one stone will be left upon another. But he's opening the door to a new priesthood, a new temple, and a new sacrifice. And that's why he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So don't, don't go to the temple anymore to have your sins forgiven. Go to him, right? And, and that allows us to see why Jesus can say, again, strangely for a first century Jew, you have a greater than the temple here referring to himself. I mean, breathtaking, breathtaking for any first century Jewish teacher ever to say in reference to himself, you have a greater than the temple here. The temple was God's dwelling place. So see, John, I think, opens the door to understanding the revolution contained in Jesus, that he's taking the Jewish revelation now and moving it to 
uh, a new pitch. The book is Eucharist. Bishop Barron, thank you for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Delightful to talk to you today. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.